I'm Nick Turzo, and you are listening to The Radical. Since we are coming to the close of 2021, I thought it would be curious to dedicate a show to an overview of music business trends and policy. I've been reading this week's guests' writing for the past few years, and while still only in his 20s, he's built a considerable readership. His newsletter, Penny Fractions, provides a fascinating look into the streaming ecosystem and policies affecting music creators. David Turner joins me to discuss the trajectory in growth in streaming, the current UK parliamentary inquiry into the major label groups, international music as an export, and whether artists will ever be their own ecosystems without having to partner with the major labels. Coming up, my conversation with David Turner. So hello, David. Hello. I really appreciate you making time to join me. Um, I've kind of been a fan of your newsletter. I don't know when you, when did you launch it? Yeah, so I started my newsletter in November 2017. Okay, and I think I've been a subscriber basically since then. So and the, the thrust of the newsletter, it's, it's called Penny Fractions. Um, when you started it, the thrust of it really was primarily the streaming business, yes? Yeah, so originally when I started in 2017, it was mostly about music streaming and just sort of looking at sort of the odds and ends of music streaming. It could have been like, hey, why are artists payouts low? Have you seen this weird viral trend? Hey, what's going on with like Fortnite and Travis Scott? Yeah, it kind of sort of had a lot sort of more like zeroing in really on the streaming side, stuff like Amazon Alexa. Over the last few years, I think over the last couple of years, more specifically, I think I've gotten way more interested into a lot of like music policy stuff, like a lot of like government regulations, stuff like that. Following the U- in the United Kingdom, they've had a, a parliamentary inquiry into the whole just streaming business that I've been following really closely. And then also I just sort of got interested in trying to like sort of like histories of certain parts of the music industry, or at least like histories of consolidation in the music industry, because I feel like there's basically very little accounting for the fact that like we have three labels, which I think most folks understand and sort of get, but I feel like there's often not a lot of like thought given to like how we got there and how the consolidation just doesn't happen on the recording side, happens in publishing, distribution, and basically all parts of our level. And you grew this, I mean, you're up to nearly 5,000 subscribers. Um, so you're very well respected now in this, in this space. Um, what prompted you really? I mean, what was your, I mean, you addressed some of that and what you oh, just yeah. said. Oh yeah, no, but. there's an origin. There's a clear origin. So basically the origin for my newsletter was in the summer of 2017. I was a freelance writer and I remember there being sort of a little hullabaloo about Spotify having fake artists on their playlist that I think reported in Music Business Worldwide and a other spot. And I was just like, oh yeah, let me like look into this. And then I basically just spent like a week and a half just like looking through these playlists, looking at all the artists, Google searching all these artists, trying to like break down the stats of all these artists and basically came to the conclusion that, oh yeah, these playlists are definitely full of like scare quotes, fake artists or like session musicians or just sort of like cheap, sort of cheap music that's being licensed out to Spotify. And yeah, so I basically wrote a lot about that. And then I also just read a couple of stories about Spotify and how their playlists work. And then by doing that, I sort of realized that like these were just releases and that they that the stories being told are just kind of nonsense and not real um and so i basically was just sending emails to my friends who also are in the music industry because my 
background before I got my current job at SoundCloud is was doing music journalism and then just obviously just know use people and music in various capacities through that i was just emailing all my music friends just like these like long like thousand plus word emails about these topics and i was like oh one it's very tedious to put 30 names in a bcc so i was like i'm gonna make a tiny letter please sign up for this so i don't have to keep emailing y'all in this fashion to save me the time of entering your emails every time so that's basically what kind of birthed birth the news better, which is sort of like seeing the Spotify fake artist thing. And then also just sort of reading up more about how Spotify playlists work and realizing that it was like, oh, kind of bullshit and a little bit. So yeah. Did that have impact on anything uh, within Spotify or anything? No, no. Because my story that I wrote actually ended up getting killed. It didn't, it didn't even get published, actually. So that was also another reason why I wanted to even do the newsletter, just because I realized a lot of these topics are fairly niche. And having to explain to like an editor or someone like why you should care about this was pretty hard. And also, again, limited resources, limited time for a lot of these folks. I was like, oh, I'll just like just write this on my own and see if I can build an audience for it. And yeah, over the last like four years, yeah, I have now like, yeah, a few thousand, yeah, like right under 5,000 folks who like read my newsletter. But I think it's like amazing. <laughs> it's like a really like solid, healthy, like number of folks where like it's, if they were all to be in a single room, I guess we could over Radio City Musical, maybe, yeah, something like that. Yeah, that's awesome. That is awesome. Well, listen, I primarily speak to artists, as you know, and kind of creators. Um, but, you know, as the year ends in 2021, I always think it's good to kind of do an overview of like where the music business stands, you know, especially from the artist's POV more so than... You know, I, I'm I'm a major label basher, so I don't want to get into my normal, <laughs> my normal label bashing um, thing. So let's start just like there's a bunch of different ecosystems. Let's let's just start with the streaming uh, ecosystem right now. You know where it is today. Um, you know, obviously beneficial to the major labels, maybe more so than the artists. Um, but the growth that's left there. Um, seems to be in countries that maybe won't have the paying tiers and the advertising revenue. Um, so talk a little bit about where we're at in streaming. Oh, great question. So I like a, I like a big picture one for streaming because I feel like it's usually very like, it's very like narrow. So on the big picture for, for streaming right now, if you think about it in sort of the big Western markets, or actually let's start in the Scandinavian markets where Spotify originated like in Sweden and sort of like Finland and Norway and all those sort of stuff. Basically, we've hit streaming like stagnation. We're like basically streaming the growth, the rate of growth in streaming slowed over time. This is why Spotify, as they've tested out increasing increasing prices, it's often been in those markets, or I think maybe in the UK also recently, trying to do it in markets where they are at their most mature, been around for over a decade. So I think in some ways you can sort of see that like in those Western European markets, the Scandinavian markets, they are like hitting the limits of how much they can sort of get penetration in markets like the United States and Canada and even some parts of sort of Latin America. They're slowly eventually, they're also slowly again starting to see like this growth slowing. And then Spotify in particular, but this is sort of a catch off for most streaming. And then in non Western and non Latin American markets, is where you're really starting to see growth start happening. So in like China, in the China, India, Southeast Asia, you're now seeing way more sort of growth of streaming. But to your point, these are often markets that are not having paid streaming. It's much more advertising based, and folks are still trying to figure out how we're going to make how they're going to make the same kind of revenue in these markets that they've been doing in these and doing in West in more Western markets. So that's kind of where we're at in 2021. This sort of like interesting sort of space where I actually think it's pretty. 
I've written this since I think 2018 when Spotify initially was going to launch in India. But if you actually looked at the Indian market, there's really no reason to believe Spotify would do that great in India because there is already Joy Savan, Ghan, like um, Ghana Music, and then and then YouTube and one or two other more regional ones. So there are basically a number of regional like um, streaming platforms that are already really successful in India. And then you can transfer this also to South Korea and like South Korea and a few other sort of the other big South Asian, Southeast Asian markets where folks expect sort of there to be like future growth, similar to the Middle East and North Africa. There are basically most of these markets already have their own sort of local, like locally dominant um, streaming platforms. Most of them are backed by the major telecommunication corporations in those particular markets. So right now, I think you can kind of look at streaming in this kind of interesting moment where like there will certainly still be growth in streaming, but I think you're going to start seeing a lot more cognizant awareness that like there won't be sort of the like same trajectory of growth that we've sort of seen over the last few years, except for, yes, in markets like China and India. But in those markets, it will most likely not be Western firms that end up sort of capturing all of that market share. Right. And with these markets kind of having their own platforms, um, you know, how does that affect like a global artist? You know what I mean? Like a Drake or something. I mean, is that going to like some of that revenue now going to, you know, be cut down as they kind of... Uh, you know, obviously put artists that are more uh, genre friendly or native to their own countries um, on the platform? I Yes, I would say that ultimately I would expect sort of the proliferation of, a, if, you, if you think back to a few years ago, the like the global success of the song Despacito by Louis Fonsi, like that kind of is sort of a precursor to sort of the fact that like over probably the rest of this decade of 2020s, I would not be surprised if you start to start seeing more Latin and then eventually more Indian sort of music sort of that ends up sort of having glo- like glo- levels of global success. Same with K-pop as well. Um, and also you will probably, similar to as you see in K-pop, see the intentional marketing of these genres non internally facing, but more externally facing. So one thing about like about Korean pop music is that like, there are certainly acts that are big in South Korea and in, in those in those like Southeast Asian countries, but often a lot of the stuff that they are doing is externally facing. They are actively trying to court basically Japan, China, and the United States, much more so than they are really interested in just in South Korea, because obviously uh, China, the United States, and Japan are really big market for music, much bigger than just South Korea's. Um, well, I don't. Actually, let me take one step back. I don't really know if China's market is now bigger than South Korea's, but by the end of this decade, it certainly will. It certainly will be. Um, so that's kind of where I kind of sort of see this happening, where you see a lot of these countries and, and these and these labels and these streaming platforms and telecommunication companies leaning more and more on their own sort of regional artists to try to specifically hone them for more external facing work as you've sort of seen in South Korea. So it's not unlike what the United States is already and what other Western markets have traditionally done, where it's like, hey, we want to try to market this artist to a global audience. But I do think that like, because of that, you will probably start seeing sort of a like, an international sort of competition. So like, will Drake be the biggest artist in the world? Maybe not. Like right now, one of the biggest artists going right now is this guy, um, this kid, the name the kid Leroy, who's an Australian like yeah. teenager. And he, I mean, that's a, a, a kind of a funny one to me because like his, him being Australian seems very incidental to the music he makes because his music is basically just some, um, it's basically just SoundCloud rap, but with um, Justin Bieber sheen. Um, so it's not like that exciting or to me like that, like that interesting, but it does sort of speak to the fact that like there is right now an increased building of the infrastructure to have these global artists that may have like regional like fans and maybe 
popular in their home market, but are really meant to be consumed by a global audience. Right. Which it could uh, end up that, you know, becomes more like, you know, a Netflix strategy, right? Which is really a global strategy and growing things in local markets and then bringing them into their, you know, their pipeline uh, across the world. I mean, Absolutely. so you're seeing that with Netflix. I mean, they seem to lead on this stuff a little bit. Um, so I guess that could happen to Spotify and the rest of them, Apple Music. Uh, yeah, and I think, and I think, I think that would end up making a lot. That would end up making a lot of sense. I do think like the one difference this is sort of my own um, wrench into this. Is, um, I'm also very curious because um, not to get too political, but if you look at broader global political trends, there's a veering towards nationalism and a veering away from globalization, and that seems very anathema to music in a way. Not like that music is like a global art form that must be listened to by all people because that just doesn't really make sense if you think about it. Music is like a local, it's very local. That's how it has context and meaning. It isn't because like people don't hear notes and are like, oh yeah, I heard this song and music connects. It's like, no, it has to have context for, sorry, this is a whole other tangent. Um, but the point that I wanted, I, wanted to make, I wanted to make there was just that I actually do think that there is something a bit curious if you look at very recent like regulation that's coming out of China, if you look at sort of the blowback that many tech major tech companies have been sort of facing, and you just sort of look at sort of, again, more political trends across more of the Western world, I'm based in New York City, so a little biased, but like in the Western world, you see sort of a rise towards a sort of a, a reaction against sort of globalization. And I do think that in some ways, the music industry is highly globalized and seeks high levels of globalization and be a via touring, via like streaming, via all these sort of methods where like the way you make money is through, is through, um, is through sort of a mass scale and it's through, it's, it's through market share basically versus it being like, oh, there's like a small niche community that, that that's being served. So I think in some senses that I think is like, to me, a potential like tension point down the line of like what happens when like, yeah, let's say a market like China is not interested in bringing on some like, American artists and that sort of cuts off a revenue stream for a UMG or a Warner. That I think is potentially something that could be happening on the line. But uh, that's sort of my, that's a little specul speculative on my part. But I do think it is just something to like, if you're looking at broader global trends, then I would just sort of want to look at that and like think about that as well. Right, and let's talk about um, what's going on in the UK since that's kind of a hot point right now and a focus of yours in this parliamentary inquiry. Um, that's inquiry. going on. I inquiry, inquiry. I, I say I've, I've never heard the word inquiry until this. And then I was like, <laughs> oh, inquiry. That's how it's So tell us what's going on in the UK around all this. Is it songwriter versus label? What's going on there? It's a really interesting thing. So earlier this year, or actually late last year, the, Uni the, U the United Kingdom basically sort of launched this inquiry. The UK Parliament launched an inquiry into basically music the digital music economy, which is a really broad topic, if you really think about it. So it's an investigation to the recorded music industry. When, especially when you consider that 80% of sort of recorded music um, industry revenue comes from streaming, and then like however many percent comes from digital downloads. It's like, basically, they did an inquiry into the record industry. They didn't frame it as such, but that's basically what it was. And the inquiry was, was started by... It was really kicked off by the UK Musicians Union, PRS for Music, and, a, and the Iris Academy, which are all sort of like different sort of songwriter and musicians groups based out of the UK. And then also a number of other groups like the um, Music Managers Forum, the Featured Artist Coalition, which are other, again, musician and artist groups that have been around and are managers, managers 
Ambassadors um, group that have been around since like around, who've been around for a number of years trying to fight this fight, basically, basically trying to lobby the government to push for this. The impetus for them to take this on was basically COVID-19. COVID-19 shut down live music and really put into really stark relief how little artists were being paid via just only streaming and sort of the UK having some sense of sort of cultural heritage, cultural um, heritage, but also sort of a sense of like ownership of the music industry and wanting to support the music industry decide to sort of open up this inquiry. So basically hundreds of different company of like companies, organizations, and even individuals submitted evidence to this, to, to this inquiry. They had held hearings with like Amazon Amazon, Google, um, Twitch, uh, I almost said Twitch, Amazon, Twitch, Amazon, on Twitch, um, all the major labels, a number of indie labels, another songwriter groups who have already previously mentioned. And so they had this big sort of like showing and hearing also featured artists. So they had this and it went on for months. And by the end of it, they ended up like putting out this like 120 page report. And this 120 page report was basically a sort of set of recommendations and sort of a set of like things that they could sort of address. Some of it had to do with trying to recommend further investigation to corporate consolidation of the major labels. Some had to do with this thing called equitable, equitable remunerations, which was about sort of like trying to pay songwriters, trying to increase the pay of songwriters versus versus um, record labels. So trying to increase songwriter pay. There is stuff around transparency. There is stuff around trying to deal with black box content, i.e. Money that is like unidentified that that isn't attribute, that isn't correctly attributed to someone that sort of sits basically kind of in escrow, and then there's a host of other things. It's like I honestly, and for anyone reading, I mean, anyone listening, I'm, I some of you may already have looked at this, but I really recommend reading this report. It's one of the one of the most comprehensive like assessments of the record industry that I've read. I read a lot, and there may have been a number of these sort of industry reports coming out lately. There is one that came out from oh, there's, this, there's one that's going to come out from the Canadian government that I have read that's really good. There is one that came out from the World Intellectual Property Organization not that long ago. And there just sort of been a number of these sort of about over the last couple of years that there's been a lot of sort of movement across different musician groups and sort of organizations to really try to like address some of the sort of inequalities that folks see in the music industry. So fast forward to today, where does it sort of stand? So the government basically looked at this inquiry and did not immediately take action. And if you read some of the biz press, some of the biz press basically was like, Boris Johnson was like, eh, I don't care. That's like kind of how they sort of framed it. And I would not frame it as such. Instead, and this is what I sort of have gleaned from reading and also talking to some folks who are much more, who are in the UK and who are actually in, in some of these like actual negotiations, they basically sort of viewed it as like, this is the first step. This is how government works. They do a whole big to-do, then they get write a big paper, and then they're like, we got to still do more research and get more people and more meetings. So government bureaucracy at its finest. Um, so where it sort of stands now is that they basically introduced three working groups, like three working groups. I think they had some different names, but like basically three working groups of sort of three industry working groups. And then they also recommended that the recommendation for competition of looking into the, the issues of competition amongst the major labels be sent to a higher UK regulatory agency to commit the, the committee for markets and the committee for markets and... I'm forgetting the last name of it. It's like, it's the CMA. It's like, it's the, it's the Committee for Markets and something else. I'm forgetting the last word of it. I'm sorry. Um, but they basically submitted it, basically as if they submitted this to like, in the United States equivalent, be like the Federal Trade Commission, basically. So there's 
a number of things still on the table. And then also some of the MPs in the UK have already written up legislation to basically try to codify some of these recommendations anyway, regardless of what the government said that it would or would not pick up. So I think in many ways, it's we're still in the middle of it. So like a lot of these um, groups are not are going to be convening over the next year. They're supposed to, again, make a final recommendation to the UK government at the end of round, the end of 2022. So we have probably another year of this to sort of go before we have to see like the final, final result. But if you just sort of start from the vantage point, which is how I covered this and why I thought this was the most interesting was like, even if the UK government did nothing, to me, the fact that any major government, especially the UK, one of the, one of the again, one of the biggest countries in terms of sort of globally, global economic power, looked at the record industry and was like, what is happening here and trying to understand it better. That to me, if you're a musician or someone that works in this industry, you should be excited. Like that is says that is a great thing. It says that there are people willing to put in time and resources and money into investigating an industry, your industry, and trying to figure out ways that it could be better and trying to have it be more potentially more equitable. Now the actual end results of what will happen are still to me very up in the air a bit. I do think that one of the other energy things is that the UK government, again, recommended to the CMA, the recommended sort of looking into the recent purchase of Sony of AWOL, basically ca- calling out the fact that like Sony buying AWOL is like potentially undermining competition in the music distribution space, which like, I, I mean, AWOL basically, Sony and AWOL basically have just dismissed this. That's why it's going to like another round of, of, of review because Sony and AWOL basically are like, lol, we, don't say, we, just, we just don't care. But like, if you think about it, the idea that, of there being like a major label buying one of the big music distributors and then thus taking an indie distributor and making them a major would be an issue of competition. And I would say it's a pretty like cut and dry one. But I've talked to enough folks who like, point out that it's a little bit harder to define what is the market for music distribution versus record labels and all that kind of stuff. So this is all sort of a long-winded way of sort of saying that like, this has been a really interesting sort of like thing to sort of witness and see. And we are still kind of directly in the middle of it. But I do think it speaks to a just sort of a broader sense, not only in the UK, but I think in other countries like the United States, France, in France, I would say France recently, last year, actually created a whole division within their ministry of culture just to do research and investigations into the music industry. Um, so I would say that like, there's broadly speaking, a sort of like push um, for, from artists and uh, many folks to try to figure out ways that, that we can try to address issues within the industry. And this UK one is just sort of the biggest example of that, but I don't really expect it to be the last. And I also don't really know what the final ramifications will end up being, but I do think it sort of speaks to this sort of clear sense that like this setup of, the music industry where you have three labels, four big streaming platforms, a couple big live music like players. Like there are only like a handful of companies that basically control most of the direction of the music industry and the recording music industry as well. So I think that there's sort of an admission that like something about this ends to akin to the phrase that Tom Gray, who's lit leader of this campaign, and uses broken record. There is like something of it broken. And then obviously there's a little bit of a pun there of them just constantly repeating this. So they are also a broken record in that sense. Got it. So, okay. So either way this ends, I mean, the losers are going to be the multinational corporations. And the hope is that the songwriters and the artists make some gains here. Some gains. I think the, the, that's the thing about it. And that's sort of why I'm, I'm sort of all excited for it is because there's very little, there's not, there's not going to be blowback against songwriters and musicians from the, the, the worst that happens is that nothing happens. 
is sort of would be the worst. But I would also say the fact that like if this has even occurred is why Sony changed up some of their legacy deals. It's why you're starting to see these sort of changes from certain record industry sort of like behaviors is because there's this intense government eye on it. And so I do think that this basically is presented a window for other musician groups or folks who have like demand on the industry to sort of like point towards this inquiry and other sort of things like it to say, hey, there's people with actual power looking into your practices. So maybe you should be trying to do a little better by us. Interesting. Well, it'd be fascinating to watch how that turns out. Um, I want to talk about your column this week a little bit, um, which focuses kind of on artist financing, um, maybe alternatives. Um, and I have a bunch of subcategories <laughs> to, to kind of address with you in this area, which is a huge area. So um, give us a little, uh, you know, paraphrase what you wrote about this week in this, yeah. on this topic. So, yeah, so my newsletter this week was basically a little bit about looking into Square, the financial, the sort of like financial transaction company buying title earlier this year. And I kind of wanted to contrast that a little bit with recent sort of startups that have been popping up that are sort of like, basically offering to do artist financing. And by artist financing, I mean like advances or some of them don't say advances. Some of them don't don't want to use that phrasing. So they say like, we have an artist fund or some lean into the advances or use actually do use the words of advance. But basically it's just trying to look at all these companies that are basically record labels, but without the record label title. So it's like, oh, I can go to this company that's going to give me a few thousand dollars based on the number of streams I have. And then it will be recouped back from the number of streams. Oh, wait, that's a label. That's just a label. But without all sort of the accoutrement of a label. So what I wanted to write about this week was less... I would say it was less of a critical look at this more than sort of like an observation of a trend. Not to say that like, I think that these are all great companies that they're doing good work, but more of the fact that like, to me, it's just an interesting trend to see that in the world of sort of music technology and finance, there is sort of an emerging market for company for startups to basically sort of say, hey, we have the technology to identify artists and be able to pay out in advance. That'll be able to sort of have us recoup the money in a way that makes them that makes sense for our investors. But again, that's just a record label. It's just a record label again without the accoutrement. And so I found that a very like curious trend. And the reason I also found a curious trend is because earlier this year I wrote like a newsletter that was about music music distribution companies, which again is a very similar space where again music distribution is basically a record label without the name. The only difference is that like Instead of it being like, oh, yeah, I'm now on United Masters as a label. It's like, oh, well, you distribute through United Masters, but you're not a high priority within United Masters. So you don't really get any better. You don't really get any good treatment or they don't really care about any of the stuff that you're doing. They only care about like their top tier artists that are actually making the money, which, again, it's just like a label. So part of the reason why I wrote this week's newsletter was sort of a rejoinder to, I think in some way, this still me trying to sort of like think through a number of sort of like, I don't know if it's like conversations. I don't even think these are conversations even happening really. I think it's just more of like me just trying to think through like trends I'm observing where I see that there is this sort of markets emerging for label-like services from companies that are everything described as everything but a record label. And then as soon as you throw the round word, the word record label, it's like, oh, but we're trying to disrupt labels. And I'm like, but you just, you are a label. You just don't have like the staff. It's like a label with, with reduced staffing. 
Right. Well, that's what's interesting about like, you know, either the, you know, the AWL thing. Yeah, yeah, AWOL. I mean, look, they're trying to create this funnel now, right? The majors and take advantage of whatever data they can pull in that funnel of independent artists as far as what's bubbling up or, you know, what genres are going to be popular. So it's interesting they're almost using these things as real big data plays, right? Yeah, it's just, but it's data play. But the thing about it, and this is why I'm always a little bit skeptical. Is I'm like, but like, what is the data actually? Because like, so if someone is saying that they're going to give you an advance based off the streams, it's like, okay, but like, you could do that, give that to an eighth grader, just show them the charts where it's like, you have this many plays this month. Here's what the trajectory is probably going to be. And I'm pretty sure an eighth grader could figure out the like, the numbers that would make sense for whatever they, they again, the fun allocations we're going to give you. It's not... The data, I, I, I guess I will say this, and I, and I say this only from like some job experience and then also just probably my own like heightened tech skepticism. But I think folks in music sometimes use data a little bit, like use the word data and think about data a little too much, where I think like actually a lot of these things are just decisions that are just made at a gut level, or these are just decisions made at more of a finite or more from the business side, not like there's data informing any of this stuff. It's more like, oh, hey, I think that this makes sense because I like this artist, not I looked at the numbers and I saw that this made sense for XYZ. Well, here's what I'm thinking at, at the 40,000 foot view of it. They're seeing the interest in certain genres more than other genres, and they might see trends developing around that, um, even less so than just discovering like a new indie artist that way, because they have enough data to do that without buying one of these funnels. Um, I think it almost lets them see trends as far as genre and stuff like that, bigger trends. You know? Yes, see that's, and that's one of the, and okay, so that's a little different. I would say, so like for some of these companies, I think there's like one was called like Nerve, um, they basically allege to be much more what I was describing, where it's like use, using data as a way to sort of like sign artists where you're right. like, that's what I mean. And that's sort of the eighth grader could do this. But again, I mean, a little facetious eighth grader can't do that. <laughs> well, certain eighth graders could. But what you're describing is a little different. That's much more akin to, yeah, when you're at like sort of a large enough scale and looking at something at a high enough level that you can start trying to identify trends and spot out things earlier and then have that inform business decisions from there. But that's, I guess, why I want to complicate sometimes the use of the word data around this because I want people to be like specific about like, what does data mean and how are you using it? Because if you're using data to try to observe like high level genre trends that you can sort of like pick and choose from, explain that versus like, hey, we're going to use data to sign an artist. I'm like, okay, but like using data to sign an artist, I'm pretty sure, I don't think people in the 70s were like, didn't look at like the, I don't think people in the 70s didn't look at sales prior before signing an act. I know obviously you had gut, you may go to a show, but if someone was like, hey, I want to, I want to spend money on this. And it's like, well, what, their last, what did their last record sell? sell? And it's like 100 copies. It'd be like, well, if there's a room of 20 of us and they all, the rest of their artists sold, 15,000 copies, why am I going to give you a budget for your 100 selling artist? That's not like data. That's, I mean, that is data, but it's not data in the way that I think many folks like in, in the contemporary times use it. Right. That makes sense. So let's talk about the artist. Let's mm. not talk about these companies for yes, a minute. Yes. So, you know, a guy like Little Nas comes on the scene. He's just a phenom. Um, the way he uses social media is so um, native to him and so in his DNA. Uh, it's just remarkable how he communicates on it. Um, 
you know, puts out a record two years after the biggest single in forever. Um, <laughs> yeah. So he's breaking like every rule. The only rule he did file was he went and signed to a major. I mean, um, which is a very important one. That's how I got the Wrangler deal. Yeah, but I just find that really fascinating because I think in a world where we're heading into tokenized communities um, and NFTs and stuff, it'd be fascinating to see what that guy could have just done on his own to, to build a community. See, it's interesting. So one of the things that I've been sort of thinking, I, I, so I will, I will say this and I, I won't get all in it. I'm like a, a broad NFT crypto skeptic, just like not like a skeptic in the sense that like I'm skeptical of it's sort of like more higher utopian sort of view that some folks have. It's just really hard for me to take. It just, it is really hard for me to take seriously the idea that there'll be an entirely new financing system for how musicians make money when I'm pretty sure that like right now, most music, like that just seems like there's only so much money. And if the issue was that like most artists can like get enough money out of their fans, like, I don't know if introducing a digital token is the thing. I think the digital token works for certain artists in certain contexts where you have like a fan base with disposable income and extra cash, but that doesn't work for like a lot of artists and a lot of folks who don't have that. But I do think, and so the point I think you're getting at, it does allow you to recontextualize a lot of stuff and allow you to create community and allow you to re, to re reconsider a lot of these things without it just being that like, hey, I'm a really buzzing artist, please go stream my song. It offers new opportunities for folks to sort of think through like, what are the next steps for that? Which is really, really great. I really, really like that. I guess I just sometimes get a little like, well, you can't, I don't know. So I feel like sometimes folks feel a little like, a cart before a horse where it's like, oh yeah, we have all this new technology that can do X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, yeah, but like if I'm an, if, but if you're an artist and you really only have like 300 fans that are willing to pay you at most a thousand dollars a month, does it matter if it's a thousand dollars a month via Bandcamp purchases or via like digitalized coins? Like it, the, the issue is that you only have a thousand dollars a month you can get, and that's not going to really cover a lot of the stuff that you needed to cover. And to me, that's kind of where I end up sort of drawing a lot more distinctions because I think when you see the success stories with NFTs and stuff, it ends up being these outlier cases or folks who have fan bases who have disposable income and extra cash. Or uh, many of these artists are also coming from like parallel to the crypto world where they have their friends who've made a quick buck via like Bitcoin spiking in price over the last year and thus are able to say oh well now i have a couple an extra hundred thousand dollars what am i going to do with my extra like six figures and then that's sort of what's you what's fun what's sort of like fueling your art right now which is, again is no like judgment in that it's like a bad thing but i don't want to sort of say that like yeah you writing you and your friends and community writing crypto like sort of bubble right now is like a viable alternative for like most other folks and then also the other thing is i'm always like it's also like anything that makes higher digital barriers for music is like something I'm just not always interested in as much because like I like going to mu I like music because I like going to shows. I like music because I like like listening to music and I like being parts of music communities. I'm not really interested in music because I'm trying to figure out how like if I go to this show and I get this digital coin, that means in a year I have the special coin. And if someone wants to get my special coin, they're out of luck because there are only 300 of these coins. And if they want one of these coins, it'll cost them like $1,500 to get access to that coin. And then if I sell them that coin, then the artist gets paid some of that. And then I get paid some of it. It's like, or I just went to, or I just went to the show, paid my $15 and enjoyed it. And that was it. And I'm not trying to figure out the like three levels chess of like having financial like sort of transactions with everything that I do. 
But isn't scarcity part of the model anyway? I mean, for the larger artists, right? There's scarcity in how many tickets you can sell. There's scarcity all around you when you get to a certain scale. And then that um, sort of, So yeah. it becomes a scarcity game-a-rama. Um. That's actually something I have been sort of, as I've been looking at more recent ticket purchases. Okay, I will also be very honest. A lot of the music, so just for context for the for like listeners, it's like most music I, I like, I like, I like a lot of like indie bands. I like a lot of them, electronic music and techno. So like scarcity is kind of like, I mean, except for obviously big artists, like, I mean, it's so like Misky this week put out a new single. I'm really excited for that. She, and I'm going to try to get tickets for one of her shows. I already know that's going to be expensive if I don't get it on, <laughs> on first go around. And that, that's scarcity there. But a lot of the, but a, but a lot of bands, especially like friends bands, like it's a $10 ticket. I don't think they are going to think they're not trying to figure out how to like get that $10 ticket into a $50 digital like wallet coin thing. And then a lot of electronic shows I go to are like, you're paying out the door. I mean, it's like you're paying cash at the door to go listen to techno to like eight in the morning. And that's not, Again, you could have the tickets and the coins, but it's like, yeah, I think you kind of know that this is not quite, it's again, for the experience in, the, in that kind of community, not right. exactly in the other sort of manner. Right. Well, the token's actually a tab of acid too. Would that help? <laughs> so here's my, I'm going to wrap this up with you. I've got two questions. Yes, yes. Okay. One is, are artists over-indexed social, social media-wise versus you know, gaming or whatever else becomes a bigger world, right? Um, with how they monetize. Mm. And two, is there any way to redo this label model where it's fair and it gets reinvented the right way? Um, two big questions for you. Two big questions. Um, for the over-index, so it's interesting. I think the gaming stuff is so interesting to me with music because I honestly, again, my personal bias, do not care. Because the reason I do not care is because one, I will, I guess it's like, I like playing video games. I played a lot of video games when I was younger. I play video games less now as I've gotten older. And I don't really think that's like about to like hit a big switch where I'm going to become a gamer again. And so I kind of like on some level just find all that just very off-putting because I'm not nine years old. Um, and most of the artists I like are my age or older. So it's kind of like, I don't expect to go see, like I don't expect some of my favorite artists to be like, yo, watch me in Roblox. It's like, I'm not watching in Roblox. But the thing with a lot of the gaming stuff that I find very curious actually is a combination of two things. One is that a lot of these big announcements around gaming are always around big artists. It's already the Travis Scott, the Ariana Grande, the artists who've already gone through the major label system, been on network, been on like basic like basic um, network television. Like well, the major Grande. labels are investors. Yes, and they're also they investors. <laughs> so like that's obvious. So it's like I don't. So I'm always a little like confused as to where like smaller artists fit into any of that narrative. And they don't. I know the answer is I don't think they do. And then the other part of it that I also find like a little bit confusing, but also a little bit interesting is that if you look at the deals that end up being signed or scare quotes, deals or agreements that happen between like the MPAA, the MP, the M, the M, the NMPA, Twitch or Roblox, or even some of these label deals with like Twitch, Roblox, some of these companies, they again are not really deals that are like aligned to all artists. They are only like basically being like, we'll give you a special like concert or treatment or stuff. And again, it's only for the top tier acts. So it feels to me a little bit of smoke and mirrors where it's like, we're talking so there's so much chatter around video games and music. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is only going to affect the most, the top like 1% of artists. 
And most artists, probably by this point next year, are just going to be back to touring and just doing... I mean, plenty of artists right now are already back to touring. Many more will be back to touring. Things will just sort of be back in that sort of method that I think a lot of the gaming stuff will exist for like the top tier acts and for the labels to just make more money and try trying to do that. And then also the other thing with that is like a lot of the gaming stuff, I'm always like, there's also a way for labels to like get money out of another industry that's entirely unregulated because unlike most of the other ways of how how musicians get paid via labels and all that stuff, there's like some high level of bureaucracy involved with like Haskell, BMI, and then all our fun friends there. But that doesn't exist with gaming. So what can happen with gaming or social media? It's like, oh, we signed a deal with TikTok. What does that mean? I don't know, but all I know is that you signed a deal with TikTok. So so Warner doesn't sue or whoever doesn't sue TikTok. And it's like, how much money did TikTok pay? I don't know. Did that money go to the average artist that just signed a deal with Warner? More than likely, it did not go to them. So if that's the case as well, then I'm kind of a little, again, like, well, then what exactly are we doing here? Because if these are like deals that are signed mostly for like the top tier acts and not really for the ones that are not at that top top tier that are, are not going to get the promotion and stuff and it, i don't really know why i don't, don't think it like matters I, again i don't think it doesn't matter i just don't think it like has the trickle down effect that i think when you read the coverage i think you get this impression that should you be trying to get into gaming and it's like do, are your fans interested in gaming and if the answer is no then you probably don't need to be thinking about gaming you should be thinking about what is it your fans want and what is it that your community wants and you shouldn't just follow whatever the thing that lil nas x or travis scott are doing and then to your second question i'll be much probably brief is um i do think that there's probably no there definitely is a better model than the label model for sure there definitely are more i mean they're I mean, you can sort of even see it in the indie space. Like, indie, and if they're not that like all independent labels are great, but like independent labels certainly can operate at a better, better sort of like economic framework than major labels can. And I also do think that like when things are exist at a slightly smaller scale, I think you can have just sort of a little bit more sort of equitability of, of how artists on rosters are treated and actually taken care of. So I do think that that is like barely possible. I don't think that's like out of, out of, out of line. But I do think, again, in the streaming era, it is harder. It certainly is much harder to be a smaller label and figure out how to sort of make money when you don't have physical sales and you don't have sort of these other sort of non-major label mediated or major label created sort of system that you have to kind of work with that you used to have more so back in the, back obviously in the 20th century. Yeah, I think I appreciate all that. I think what I was trying to maybe go, maybe I was trying to get to is, you know, music is such a passive experience and that passivity in the current world where everyone's engaged with technology and gaming and that stuff isn't passive and that stuff is really got people's attention. And that's why I think a lot of musicians and their fan bases are so large. But to be honest with you, it's such a passive sport. I don't know how great their fan bases really are once you peel that down a little, you know. I see. I think the thing about it is, and again, not, this is why I go with the gaming thing. It's like who, who, like the a lot of people who game are young people and kids who have free time. And what happens? A lot of people my age, you'd be surprised. I, I, I'm actually always surprised by that. To be fair, but I feel like I, I'm also, but I also, I, I actually am curious. Like, are are you people your age and, and people like yourself? Are they interested in having music experiences via gaming? Um. I don't see why not. You know what I mean? If they're culturally still playing these games, I think they're somewhat attuned to culture. So 
I, this is where I feel like I'm like, and I could be wrong. So I'm actually very excited to sort of see where this goes over the next decade. I just do think that like the appeal of this is much more limited than I think folks want to say, want to believe it is. I think that, and I think one of the other reasons I say that, and then also I've been, been on a little anti-technology fan, as you can probably tell right now, um, is that I feel like in some ways over the last year with COVID and sort of this reduction down of folks having to do things via DPA, mediated digitally, I think as folks transition out of that and then there is a sort of return to like more live things and there's sort of being a lack of sort of everything needing to be digital, I do think that there'll be sort of a slight correction out of that because I do think the idea that like folks are like ever wanting digital like existence, I think is like very, I don't want to say like overblown, but I'm always a little like, there's something strange if like, you have to spend 12 plus hours a day in front of a screen. And I think that like at a certain level, like it's one, I don't think it's healthy. I'm not a doctor. I'm just projecting. I don't think, I think it's like a little unhealthy, but also I do kind of think that like, if you're spending that much time, like in front of a screen and that becomes all the stuff that is mediated, then I don't think music, again, I also like going to live music. So I guess this is the other part of me that like no amount of like live stream concerts is a live concert and they don't connote the same things. And they also just, don't have the same value so i would never really like and it's why i'm not going to arrive up for my next newsletter but it's like i don't actually think that like live stream concerts are like the future of really anything they're like a niche product on top of what we already have and also the other very clear one is that like bands can go play msg like an artist can play msg for like three i think the grateful dead actually probably did. i think where they played like msg for like a week you're but people will do that because that's an experience to go through people are not going to go watch the live stream grateful dead show every day i mean some people might but they aren't going to fork over the money to do it because it's just not going to have the same value because you're not going to a thing you're not experiencing with other people you're not having all this other stuff and i think sometimes there's a very easy quick like does not I think it's very easy to dismiss that, especially over the last year when everything has to have been like digitized and people have to do things in this manner. But I do think it is a perfectly good question to ask why live stream concerts have not been a bigger thing prior to the pandemic, because I remember watching Pitchfork stream their festival like over a decade ago. And I don't feel like that really got any more exciting the first couple of times I watched it. But going to an actual festival is still exciting. Right. Cool, cool. Well, listen, I always appreciate your point of view. Um, I've been reading you for almost four years. Um, how do people find you? Yes. Yeah, so if you want to find me, you can find me at Penny Fractions. Um, just type in Penny Fractions to Google. You can either find me on, I have a ghost, my, I moved my newsletter over to this platform, Ghost. So you can sign up for it there. If you sign up for it on the old newsletter, I'll also just move you over. I check it every day. And then if you want to follow me on social media, you can follow me at Penny Fractions at twi- on Twitter. And that's basically it. And if you're in New York City or something, if you were happen to run across me or see me, say hey. I always like chatting. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Like I say, I respect your writing and uh, I love your point of view on things. I really enjoyed the chat, so thank you. All right. Thanks, David. Stay healthy. Thank you for listening. This show originates from the podcast capital, Austin, Texas. My producer is Sean O'Neill. Visit theradicalpot.com for updates and even some merchandise. Also, please subscribe at Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
And I also ask that you please share episodes with your friends so we can continue to grow our community. See you all again next Friday.